We're actually, we're kicking off a brand new series today, and uh, we're going to be walking through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I have no idea, no even, uh, not even a guess how long or how much time we're going to take to uh, get through the Gospel of Matthew, but uh, it's going to be a fun ride, and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun to cover. I mean, there's so much important stuff, obviously, that happens in the first book of the uh, New Testament, and so... Well, we're just going to walk through it, take our time, see what God has to say, and, and uh, I think it's going to be wonderful. So uh, this will serve as a little bit of an uh, uh, introduction, and, uh, but it will also cover some territory in the first couple chapters. And so today, and, and it's just a little kind of a backstory. Um, Matthew, obviously the first book of the New Testament, uh, it, it uh, starts the New Testament and the Old Testament. 39 books from uh, Genesis to Malachi, and uh, the Old Testament covers about roughly a little bit more than a thousand years, and so you've got a a thousand years covered in 39 books of the Old Testament, and uh, and then, of course, Matthew starts the New Testament, which lasts basically uh, a person's lifetime. The New Testament just basically is is the length of a, a person's lifetime, and and so uh, in between the uh, Malachi and uh, Matthew, in your Bible, it's just like a page. You might get the, the little page in between that says, welcome to the, to the New Testament or whatever. But uh, that, even though it's just a page in your Bible, the span of time between the end of the Old Testament in Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament in Matthew is 400 years. So that one little page in between the Old Testament and the New Testament represents 400 years. And so, and that was 400 years of radio silence from God. That's why there's no, that's why there's no documentation. God wasn't saying anything. He wasn't speaking through prophets. He wasn't speaking directly. He was just complete and total silence as far as uh, our connection with God is concerned. And then, then all of a sudden, with the, uh, with the book of Matthew. Matthew documents some of the earliest accounts of the arrival, the life, the ministry of Jesus that we have. And, uh, of course, Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples, and uh, he wrote the first of the, what we call the four Gospels. And uh, just, to give a, just to give a little kind of overview of the Gospels, why is there four? Why are there four Gospels? And I know a lot of people kind of thought, why was this like redundant, some of this stuff? And, of course, you got the three synoptic Gospels that are pretty much, they, they follow the same timeline. Then John kind of goes off script and does his own thing. But uh, Matthew is written directly to a certain people group. And uh, it's directed towards a very specific group of people. The book of Matthew is written towards the Jewish people. And that's who he's writing to. That's who he's talking to. And he focuses on, on, on a specific aspect of who Jesus is. And, and he presents him in a very specific light. And so Matthew's goal is to present Jesus as king, as the rightful king of Israel, as the king of the Jewish people. And so he presents him as king. That's where he starts with the lineage uh, dating back to Abraham and comes all the way forward to kind of to, to, to basically personify Jesus as being the rightful king of Israel. And then Mark, uh, the second gospel that you come to. Mark is more concise. He's, it's a very short book, but uh, it is written specifically 
to the Roman people. So the book of Mark is written towards the Roman people, which have a very different perspective, a very different life experience than the Jewish people. Extremely different. And uh, in, in Mark, really, he presents Jesus as in a way that the Roman people would appreciate and understand, and he presents Jesus as a servant. And so you see that context. You see, throughout the book of Mark, you see Jesus really highlighted as being one who serves. And that's his goal. That's his, that's his, that's his desire. Now, the book of Luke, Dr. Luke, is written. He's very cerebral, very intelligent. And, of course, he writes specifically towards the Greek people who are very cerebral, very intelligent. And so uh, these, these are the people that are they're, uh, in a different place. They're, they're more into intellectualism. And, uh, and so Luke writes to the Greek people, and he focuses on Jesus as being a man, as a person, as one of us, but, but the, the greatest example of a man. Because the Greek people were very much into humanism and, and human enlightenment and, and personal enlightenment. So, so they, uh, Luke presents Jesus as being the uh, ultimate example of that, as, uh, as the, the supreme superior person that we should all aspire to be. And so he focuses on Jesus as a man. That's why he traces the lineage all the way back to Adam as opposed to just back to Abraham because he's establishing the first man and here's the new Adam here is a representation of God as man on earth. And so, and then John, the book of John is written really towards the whole world. He, he's really shooting for our general audience of the entire world. This is why the book of John starts with this idea of, of for God so, or John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he, he gave his, his son. And so that is uh, a message to the entire world and, and not a specific audience. And he focuses on Jesus as... God. So Matthew focuses on Jesus as king. Mark focuses on Jesus as servant. Uh, Luke focuses on Jesus as a man. And then John focuses on Jesus as God. And he starts his book in John, in the beginning was the word, the word became flesh. It was with God, it was God. And so he focuses on this picture of Jesus as God. And so uh, in the book of Matthew, again, we're, we're looking at Jesus as king to the Jewish people, the first three chapters, uh, very intentionally, what Matthew is doing is he is connecting the Old Testament with the New Testament. And you see a lot of references, a lot of imagery, uh, a, a, a lot of connection between the Old Testament and the New because he's bringing, he's bridging the gap, the 400 years of silence, he's bringing us up to speed. And basically what he is showing is that the New Testament is going to be uh, really living out an example of the Old what the Old Testament spoke to and prophesied, predicted. And so the Old Testament was Jesus, but Jesus concealed, and now we're living in time in the New Testament, Jesus revealed. And so all these things that we're talking about were, are, are going to manifest and show up in the New Testament. And so in, in the Old Testament, it, it has a, 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 a lot of messages that, that come to fruition even in the first chapters of the, the, uh, the New Testament. So this starts with the beginning of, uh, of the genealogy of Jesus. And so Matthew kicks off, and I'm not going to read it. Uh, you can go back and read this if you want, and you can look at the, uh, the geneal- genealogy, the family tree of Jesus. And so in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, 
you, you get this, this uh, you get kind of this 23andMe backlog of who Jesus is, uh, who his grandparents are, and all that good stuff. So it's pretty cool. And, and it starts with Abraham. The first two names mentioned, Abraham, David. Uh, these are kind of the all-stars that, that uh, Matthew decides to start with, to leave with, and that's a, there's purpose behind that. And so he's dating uh, Jesus all the way back to Father Abraham, who had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Now, I'm one of them, and so are you. Let's all praise the Lord. Let's, let's do the right arm, left arm, left leg, right leg. I, I always thought they should come out with a Christian version of Twister that <laughs> tied in with the Father Abraham song. Right leg, green, right arm. Right. Anyway, so if you didn't grow up in church, that, that is not funny to you at all, and I apologize. So, uh, so we start with uh, Abraham's the first name mentioned, father of a faith, friend of God. Um, the story of Abraham kicks off around Genesis chapter 11. He's Abram, and the, we know the story. And, uh, and so he, he, he has, uh, he, he, he's been told by God, hey, you and your wife are going to have many, many children. They're going to outnumber the numbers of uh, grains of sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. You're going to have lots and lots of kids. He looked across this, the table, and he saw one of the golden girls looking back at him, and he's like, God, that's not going to happen. This is, this is impossible. And, uh, but, of course... With God, all things are possible. So he, he takes matters his, in, into his old hands and says, I tell you what, uh, he has a, this weird agreement with his wife. Hey, we've got this gal who works for us. <laughs> How about, mm, you know, and then uh, we'll make a baby. And uh, everything, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get it off to the races. God needs a little help and creativity and problem solving. And God's like, no, that's not, that's not it. And so we get the story starting Genesis 11. Here's the story of, of this family that begins. Now, the entire Old Testament, starting from Genesis chapter 11 all the way to the end of the Old Testament, is about one family. The whole Bible, in the Old Testament, starting in Genesis 11, paints a picture, tells a story, the history, uh, these weird moments, these miracles, these, these shining moments, these horrible uh, low points. It's all telling the story of one family. And that family leads us to the birth of Christ. And so the genealogy of Christ is uh, the family tree is pictured here in the beginning of Matthew. And you would think at first glance, you see these familiar names, you see Abraham, you're like, that is the father of faith, friend of God. He is a big, big deal. Probably one of the most impressive godly men. He was a man of faith. And uh, he's called the father of our faith. And then you read in detail the story of Abraham. You're like, where, when, so when did this guy ever have any faith whatsoever? It's rare. And then the next name that's thrown out there, you're like, David. Now, David, there's a hero. You think of the, the, the sling and the, you know, all that stuff with the Goliath. And, and then you get a little further. And you're like, okay, well, even before that, you're like, he's killing liger, lions, ligers. <laughs> He's killing, Napoleon Dynamite said, he's killing lions and tigers and bears. He's killing, protecting sheep. He's protecting his people, stepping up as the youngest brother. And he's like killing this Goliath, this giant. And it's very impressive. And then you get to the whole Bathsheba part of the story. You're like, oh, okay. It's a little scandalous. And then you see these moments in his life where he's just, he's going insane. And he's, he's acting like he's frothing at the mouth so people don't notice him. And, and it's, it's just a wild, wild ride, this guy's story. And so you realize these heroes that we have in the Bible, these biblical heroes, are not that impressive. Then we get to, and I just want to do it. This is an overview. I'm not reading through it, but I just want to give you just a little bit of a synopsis, just a brief picture 
of Jesus's family tree. And so uh, a name stood out. I was, I was prepping for this, and I just want to kind of get specific here with a couple of names. Uh, there's a name in his lineage, uh, Judah. Now, Judah is a famous, you hear the tribe of Judah, the line of Judah. These are, he was a brother of Joseph. Joseph with the Technicolor dream coat, that guy that Dolly Parton sang about, wrote about. And so Joseph is the guy that was thrown into the pit by his brothers. And uh, his brothers lie to their father that he's dead. He's uh, no longer with us because they were a little jealous of Joseph. Joseph was a little braggy. He'd, uh, he'd talk about these great dreams that God gave him. God gave me a great dream. And in the dream, you guys are bowing to me. It was awesome. I was ruling over you. And they just, they had enough. And so they threw him in a pit, uh, faked his death, told, uh, told dad that, that uh, Joseph's no longer with us. Then they sold him into slavery. That's his own brothers. His own family did that. And so I don't know if you've ever uh, had a spat with your, uh, your sibling I have a scar on my eyebrow from my sister, Charity, who uh, I was uh, in my uncle's conversion van. He had taken the sink out of his conversion van. There was a PVC pipe in the bottom of the van, and we were driving around, and I was looking through the pipe. I said, cool, you can see the road. Right then, my sister decided to hit me in the head with a pillow. So, boink, cha-boink, blood, blah, oh, it was graphic. It, it probably looked like when Goliath got hit in the melon with the... And so, uh, four stitches, thanks to my sister Charity. We're, we're, I don't even know that we were fighting, but it was a very, it was a very, it was a very uh, traumatic experience, to say the least. At least she didn't throw me in a pit until my parents saw I was dead. And uh, she, I don't, she never sold me into slavery once. And so, this is a really, this is a colorful uh, sibling rivalry. And so, uh, Judah is part of that whole experience. And so, later on in his life, he marries a, a young lady by the name of Shewa. Isn't it a beautiful name? Shewa. I love you, Shewa. And so he marries Shewa. They have, they have kids. They name their kids Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And sometimes I like to say uh, when I read it, Sheila. And so, oh, Sheila. And so uh, Ur is the eldest, and he marries uh, a woman named Tamar, and for no apparent reason that we know, we have no idea why, for some reason, God strikes her dead. Boom. Gone. He's dead. And so, of course, his parents are grieving. This is awful. Tamar is now a widow. And so, per custom, Tamar is to be now joined to his next uh, brother in line, and so Tamar marries Onan. So now Onan is responsible to have Tamar as a wife, whether he likes it or not. This is the custom, this is the cultural custom, and they are supposed to continue the bloodline and have children, but these children will be credited to Ur, his older brother, his Onan's older brother. He's supposed to have children, and they're to be credited to his older brother. So he says, I tell you what, we will enjoy our honeymoon, if you know what I'm saying. I'm being very vague here because, you know, there might be children listening. So I'll use a lot of euphemisms. And so uh, they're, they, they're, they're like, we'll enjoy our honeymoon. Go to a nice place. Go to Pigeon Forge. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, this makes me uncomfortable. So, uh, you know, they uh, famously, 
they enjoy their honeymoon, but uh, Onan is like, but I'm not going to have the baby bump. It's not going to happen. So, you know, he doesn't. And um, so God decides, you know what? I'm just striking this kid dead too. Boom, gone, dead. Two sons are dead. You can imagine Judah and, and Shua are like, they're heartbroken. This is awful. And they look to their third son because, per custom, now Tamar is his problem. And so we're down to just young Shelah. Shelah is too young to get married at this point. And so Judah turns to Tamar and says, I tell you what, go spend time with your family. Go hang out with them. We will send for you when the, on his birthday, when he reaches the age of marriage, and then you can, you can be married to our youngest son. Now, you, you're imagining the common denominator. Two of our sons have been struck dead for no apparent reason. The common denominator is Tamar. Tamar is trouble. And so uh, they purposely uh, avoid betrothing their youngest son to Tamar because he's the only one they got left, and Tamar is bad news. So Tamar is waiting and waiting and waiting, and she realizes this family lied to me, and I'm without a husband because of them. And so she finds out, she's living in this, this nearby town, and she is living with her family, and she hears to the grapevine, Judah is coming to town to do some business. And so she uh, does a little, uh, she, she puts on a disguise, and this is all in the Bible. I'm not making this stuff up. She puts on a disguise, and she orders through Amazon a uh, prostitute Halloween costume. Sexy Buzz Lightyear. I don't know what it is. I like all the girl costumes are normal costumes, but sexy, right? Sexy Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> sexy. I want to I wear the sexy, goofy con- costume. <laughs> Gorge. <laughs> Look at me. Ain't I hot? Uh, anyway, sorry. Forget I said that. So uh, she wears a stereotypical uh, prostitute costume and to the point where she's not recognizable. So she goes out there, and she sees Judah coming. And she, hey, big boy, and she, she, you know, whatever. And he's like, you know what? Sure. <laughs> I got some time. Uh, <laughs> It's actually worse when I'm vague, actually, uh, but it's fun. Um, Chris, just say it. So they, uh, you know, things happen, and uh, they enjoy their honeymoon. And so uh, guess what? Afterwards, she's like, ta-da, surprise. (laughs) I'm your daughter-in-law. This is so weird. This is the Bible. And so uh, this, she actually is now with child. So he's like, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, I, I, let me just settle up with you and we'll, we'll forget this ever happened. And she said, well, you owe me about, you know, two young goats or something like that. And so weird payment scale back then. He's like, dude, I'm, all, I'm fresh out of young goats. And, uh, and so he's like, I tell you what, I'll go to the house, I'll get a young goat, I'll bring it back to you. And she says, well, I'm, I don't trust you. So give me some collateral. And so she says, give me your signet ring that's very specific to that family. It's, it's, it identifies Judah. And give me, uh, give me this, this rod that you carry that is 
uh, yours, and, and then I, everyone knows that this is yours, and I'll have collateral. Well, he never pays her, and so, it, uh, and so she's like, I, I'm going to tell everybody what happened. So she confronts him with it, and so he, this is his statement. Tamar, I'm sorry, you're far more righteous than I am. That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. She just pretended to be a prostitute, tricked you into the hibbity-dibbity, and now we got a baby bump. This is weird. Their kid that they had together is, and I, I forgot to mention, Shua had passed away. He wasn't stepping out on Shua. She, was, she, she died, and this is him in the grieving process. But they have, a, they, have a, they have a baby, and that baby's name is Perez. They have another baby named Zera. And these two names are in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Jesus' family tree is very crooked. It is, um, it's a mess. Believe it or not, in Jesus' family tree, Tamar is not even the only prostitute. <laughs> There's more. Rahab. Rahab's last name is the harlot. <laughs> When you read the Bible, Rahab who? Oh, Rahab the harlot. Okay. I know her. She hid the spies, and uh, she, that was her profession, the oldest profession. Well, Rahab marries a guy named uh, Salmon. It's a French pronunciation. Spelt Salmon. Salmon. Um, they had a, a son named Boaz who ended up being the hero that marries Ruth. Big, big deal. These are, these are amazing people and they have sketchy stories. That's David's grandma is the son of this Rahab the harlot. So the reason I, I wanted to kind of just cut through a little bit of that is to give you a mental image. And some of, the, <laughs> some of that's not good, but um, this all leads to the story of the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Matthew starts this, the, the New Testament with this lineage, and, it, and again, at face value, you're like, these are heroes of the Bible, and then you dig a little bit, and like, man, these are some messed up people. They are not good people. And he's painting the picture, then he gets right into the This is the first half of the first chapter of Matthew, then the second half, he starts talking about the arrival of Jesus. That goes through the second chapter of Matthew. He talks about, of course, we all know the Christmas story. Jesus arrives, and, and he is all through the bloodline of this really messed up, crazy family. So Jesus interrupts this bloodline. So he is this divine interruption where, where our family history, this again, we're all telling the story of one family. This family history leads up to a point where Jesus arrives, it's immaculate conceptions through the Holy Spirit, and so he shows up, Joseph's his stepdad, and so he interrupts this entire bloodline that we've been talking about for the last all, a thousand years we've been talking about this bloodline. And so now this, he begins this, he inaugurates a new bloodline, the blood of Christ, and then he starts adopting all of us into it. So this family history, in, in the way that Malachi ends, it, it ends with this idea of you got the law, obey it. Just do the law. That's what you got. So 400 years it's been human beings on their own trying to make life count, trying to like make life meaningful, trying to make life matter, trying to like make any any. To, to kind of squeeze out any sort of meaning and purpose of their life on their own. Humanism. 
And then we get to see the picture of humanism on full display. What does humanism lead to? Failure, fractured, jacked up, messed up, sinful brokenness. And Jesus says, that's not going to work. So Jesus arrives and he shows us that we can be in a new family. So he came for brokenness, but he also came from it. So uh, something I wanted to hit on as we kind of begin to wrap up today is this idea. We get a mental image of what Christians should look like. We, we start getting uh, an idea of what it requires to be in a church, a part of church, a Christian. There's a dress code. There's a code of conduct. There's a method of speech. There is a method of behavior. You have to look the part, act the part, and historically, and I think one of the, the, the biggest insults that people throw at Christians, generally speaking, is that those Christians are hypocrites. In fact, most, that is the number one criticism of Christianity. It is hypocritical. Jesus spoke to that same thing when he talked to the religious leaders of the day. He said, you guys are hypocrites. You're, you, you say one thing, you do another. You put impossible burdens on people, and then you won't lift a finger to help them lift it and help them. Hypocrites, aren't we all? So, are we hypocrites? Yeah. Inside the church, you will find lots and lots of hypocrites. But if you decide to look outside the church, you'll find lots and lots of hypocrites. Hypocrites are everywhere. They're not, we, we, Christians have not cornered the market on hypocrisy. Everybody struggles with that. There being an alignment and a genuine sense of, I, I am what I say I am, I, and, and what I present is 100% accurate. You see people, uh, you ever run into someone at Walmart and they just thought they'd pop out, grab something, and they wouldn't run into anybody, and they're wearing, like, the worst sweatpants ever, and their hair is all jacked up and no makeup, and they see you coming, and they hide. They duck under the, uh, the they're, they're under this, the bags of cereal that are on the bottom shelf, like, hiding behind those. Um, we, it's because we're used to presenting ourselves in a certain light, and so uh, we don't want anyone to see us without our makeup. And so Jesus, his lineage, his family tree, and if you, the Bible doesn't pull punches. If you read the stories of these people's lives, Solomon is in the, the lineage of Christ, the wisest man who ever lived, the wealthiest man who's ever lived. He's, he's incredible. And he died far from God, resentful, hated God, died far, far from him. His story did not end well. It was not a happy ending. The Bible's honest. The Bible's transparent, and the Bible depicts human beings who genuinely are flawed, fractured, and broken. It's almost like Matthew starting the Bible with this idea of, guys, Jesus isn't after the clean and the competent. He's not after the, the together. He didn't come for the perfectly pristine, sparkly Christians he came for real, honest-to-God, broken people. The author, the one documenting this, his name is Matthew. 
And I want to end with a little bit of his backstory. Matthew, when Jesus met him, he came upon him and invited him to follow him. Matthew was at a tax collection booth. He was a tax collector. Now, to us, the guy who worked for the IRS, it's a little annoying. <laughs> Not my favorite group of humans. Might represent a little sore subject for you. But it was so much worse than that. At this time, the Jewish people are under Roman rule. Roman government has ruled over them, and, and, and Roman government has instituted all these unfair, overwhelming taxes. And in order to collect these taxes, they would implement, you, actually, people would buy steak to be a part of this. So they would buy into the, the, the enterprise of taxing their own people. So they would buy steak in this, and they, they would become a tax collector. And that person becoming a tax collector would also up the tax that is demanded from their own people in order to gouge them, in order to pad their own pockets, and that's how they made their money. That's why tax collectors were historically incredibly wealthy. You look at the story of Zacchaeus. This guy is not poor. He's wealthy. He's rich. And these are, so these are people who are really dirty, underhanded people who have sold out their own people, their own family, for the Roman government who's oppressing them so that they themselves could become rich. They're mafia bosses. It's gross. And you can see why the conversation, you're like, why do people talk about tax collectors like they're the worst thing in the world? That's why. These are traitors to our own people, our own families. These are people that sold out their grandma to make a buck. Matthew is one of those guys. And Jesus says, that's who I want on my team. God of the universe puts on skin, becomes a human, descends to earth, shows up in the most humble way imaginable. Doesn't show up riding on a white horse. He shows up as a baby. And not a baby born at Erlanger, like this baby was. A baby born at the Chattanooga Zoo. He was born in a barn placed in a gross, disgusting feeding trough, surrounded by donkeys and aromas that one can only imagine. How happy were they when the, the frankincense guy showed up? You're like, oh, thank God. Just a little, little Glade plug-in. This, this place reeks. Jesus shows up, human flesh, becomes one of us, and then starts picking his team. He's like, who do I want? These guys who've memorized the Bible backwards and forwards, uh, the, the moral elite that have never done anything wrong ever. No, I'll take the tax collector that everybody hates. I want to influence the world to follow me. Who, I, who do I want? The least influential person I can imagine chooses Matthew. The only scripture I'm going to read today is not even the scripture we're talking about. I'm not even reading from Matthew chapter 1 or Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to skip down to Matthew chapter Nine, because this is where Matthew joins the team. And so this is what it says. If you can follow along on the screen here, if you go to the first slide of the scripture, as this is Matthew 9, 9 through 12. 
Jesus went out from there. He saw a man called Matthew. That man was sitting in the tax collector's booth. That's where he worked. And he said to Matthew, hey, follow me. And then Matthew, no questions asked, he got up and he followed Jesus and his disciples. Then it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. Now, what house is this? Most people believe this is actually Matthew's house. But we don't know. It doesn't matter. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners, they came. And they were dining with him and Jesus and his disciples. This is the, this is the scuttlebutt. This is the public reaction to this complete debacle. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. But when Jesus heard this, he said, hey, he overheard them. They were talking behind his back, heard him because he's Jesus. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. So uh, Jesus decides to dine with, and, and the generic phrasing is tax collectors. We know what they do. And sinners. Who's that? I don't know. Sinners. Needless to say, this is a group that you would be embarrassed to be caught out in public with if you are a uh, religious leader, if you are uh, a TV preacher, (laughs) if you are someone who is known in, in the community as a pastor, and you see that pastor sitting down with America's Most Wanted, people whose faces are up in the post office. These are people that would make you blush. People that, if described in church by me in 2023, I use crazy euphemisms. (laughs) These are colorful sinners. And where is Jesus? Is he at Tzatziki's with the religious leaders? No. He's at somebody's house throwing back Zima's I don't know what I thought of that. Throwing back uh, cold ones with the riffraff, the worst dregs of society. And the Pharisees are like, they're, they're absolutely outraged to the point where they start basically talking loud enough for everybody to hear. What, this is your guy? This is the Son of God? This is the Savior? Who is he with? You are who you hang around, guys. He eats and drinks with sinners, tax collectors. And Jesus' response, to paraphrase, you dang skippy. And this is where, he, 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 this is where we're going to end. This is where he, he kind of sets this, the whole table. He sets this up for his entire life and ministry. He says, yep, because I didn't come for the healthy came for the sick. He's the great physician. In other words, I didn't come for this group of people that you assume that I came for. I came for the the group of people that you ignore and reject. Now, this creates two categories. And at first glance, and this is how people will interpret it, I've heard people interpret it this way. There are healthy people and there are sick people. There are good people And there are bad people. That is not at all what's being said. That is not at all the categories that we see framed throughout the New Testament. At all. 
What Jesus is saying is there are two categories of people. There's a category of people that know and realize and acknowledge and admit they are sick. And then there's a group of people who have convinced themselves that they're healthy. It's not that they're actually good. It's not that they actually don't need Jesus. They just refuse to acknowledge the fact that they are sick and need a physician. It is, it is not a difference between good and bad. It's a difference between those who know they're bad and those who think they're good. That's the dichotomy. That's the, that's the picture he's painting. He's like, I came for the people who know they need me. He says it in the, uh, in the Pharisee's house. He's having dinner with the Pharisee. And he, he's talking to the Pharisee, and all of a sudden this, this woman, here's a theme, she's got a sketchy reputation, and she walks in, she lunges at Jesus' feet, and just starts weeping. And the Pharisee's like, if you knew anything about this woman's story, you would not let her anywhere near you. And Jesus says, here's the problem. And he starts telling a story that seemingly has nothing to do with the situation. He says, hey, so two people are lended money. One is forgiven a little bit of money, and one's forgiven a lot of bit of money. Who is going to love more? It's a weird question. And the Pharisee says, the guy who's forgiven the most? Yes. And this is what he says. She knows she needs much forgiveness. You don't think you need any. He paints the picture. This is the dichotomy. This is the difference. You think you've got your stuff together. You're living blissfully unaware of your own sinful brokenness. The world is pushing us. Culture pushes us. This entire, the way that the world works, the, the systems of this world, they, they push you towards humanism. Personal enlightenment. Personal discovery. Personal advancement. Personal, personal promotion. You becoming more ascended as a human. You becoming the best version of yourself. And with that comes pride and superiority. With that comes status, and it comes hierarchy. And Jesus, you'll see throughout the entire first gospel of the New Testament, is that he is encouraging us to run to the back of the line because that's where we belong to be. That's, that better represents God's amazing saving grace that we acknowledge and, and realize how much we need it. This is not a life built on self-discovery and humanism. This is a life that we're meant to be desperate for God's saving grace, his love and his mercy. Thank God for Jesus. The, the message of the Old Testament, starting with Moses and the delivery of the law, ending in Malachi, is this idea. Here's the law. Live it. Here's the reality. You can't. It's impossible. It's an impossible burden. We can't live our way to heaven. We can't act our way to heaven. We can't talk our way to heaven. 
We're not going to get to heaven on our good looks. The law is impossible. And the law is given for a very specific reason. It diagnoses us. The law is the diagnosis. And the diagnosis is you're, you're, you're critically ill. So Jesus says, I came for those people. I came for the unhealthy. I came for the sick. So Jesus, unlike the law, the law of diagnosis, but Jesus is not the diagnosis. He's our deliverance. He's the answer. So the law diagnoses our sin. Jesus delivers us from it and says, hey, this is impossible. You can't get there from here. You can't do it. You're not good enough, smart enough, talented enough. You don't have it. And it's not an indictment on you. It's, a, it's an indictment on humanity. We can't do that. We can't go into the God business and expect to succeed. It's like making a four-year-old a CEO of a, of a, a Fortune 500 company. It's a bad idea. And Jesus is like, I'm, I'm the answer. I'm the deliverance. So Jesus fulfills the law on our behalf, imputes his righteousness to us, and now it is not our righteousness, our right standing has nothing to do with what we have or have not done, and has everything to do with who Jesus is and what he freely gives us. You're righteous not because you didn't cuss this week, you're righteous because Jesus made you righteous. Now over time, the Bible talks about his righteousness will begin to kind of get into our bloodstream, into our bones, and we'll start to make different choices and think differently, act differently, believe differently. That's a beautiful byproduct, but that's Jesus working in us. That's not us working for Jesus. We don't clock in and do that. That is a work of the Holy Spirit in and through us. Step one is fixing our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith.